Chapter 15 of The Birth of Tragedy or Hellenism and Pessimism by Friedrich Nietzsche. Translated by William Hausmann. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. 15. In the sense of these last portentous questions, it must now be indicated how. The influence of Socrates, extending to the present moment, indeed, to all futurity, has spread over posterity like an ever-increasing shadow in the evening sun. And how this influence again and again necessitates a regeneration of art. Yea, of art already with metaphysical, broadest and profoundest sense. And its own eternity guarantees also the eternity of art. Before this could be perceived, before the intrinsic dependence of every art on the Greeks, the Greeks from Homer to Socrates, was conclusively demonstrated, it had to happen to us with regard to these Greeks as it happened to the Athenians with regard to Socrates. Nearly every age and stage of culture has at some time or other sought with deep displeasure to free itself from the Greeks, because in their presence everything self-achieved, sincerely admired and apparently quite original, seemed all of a sudden to lose life and color and shrink to an abortive copy, even to a caricature. And so hearty indignation breaks forth time after time against this presumptuous little nation, which dared to designate as, quote, barbaric, unquote, for all time everything not native. Who are they? One asks oneself, who, though they possessed only an ephemeral historical splendor, ridiculously restricted institutions, a dubious excellence in their customs, and were even branded with ugly vices, yet lay claim to the dignity and singular position among the peoples to which genius is entitled among the masses. What a pity one has not been so fortunate as to find the cup of hemlock, with which such an affair could be disposed of without ado. For all the poison which envy, calumny, and rankling resentment engendered within themselves have not sufficed to destroy that self-sufficient grandeur. And so one feels ashamed and afraid in the presence of the Greeks. Unless one prize truth above all things, and dare also to acknowledge to one's self this truth, that the Greeks, as charioteers, hold in their hands the reins of our own and of every culture, but that almost always chariot and horses are of too poor material, and incommensurate with the glory of their guides. Who then will deem it sport to run such a team into an abyss? which they themselves clear with the leap of Achilles. In order to assign also to Socrates the dignity of such a leading position, it will suffice to recognize in him the type of an unheard-of form of existence. The type of the theoretical man, with regard to whose meaning and purpose it will be our next task to attain an insight. Like the artist, the theorist also finds an infinite satisfaction in what is, 
and like the former he is shielded by this satisfaction from the practical ethics of pessimism with its lynx eyes which shine only in the dark for if the artist in every unveiling of truth always cleaves with raptured eyes only to that which still remains veiled after the unveiling the theoretical man on the other hand enjoys and contents himself with the cast-off veil and finds the consummation of his pleasure in the process of a continuously successful unveiling through his own unaided efforts there would have been no science if it had only been concerned about that one naked goddess and nothing else for then its disciples would have been obliged to feel like those who purpose to dig a hole straight through the earth each one of whom perceives that with the utmost lifelong exertion he is able to excavate only a very little of the enormous depth which is again filled up before his eyes by the labors of his successor so that a third man seems to do well when on his own account he selects a new spot for his attempts at tunneling if now some one proves conclusively that the antipodal goal cannot be attained in this direct way who will still care to toil on in the old depths unless he has learned to content himself in the meantime with finding precious stones or discovering natural laws for that reason lessing the most honest theoretical man ventured to say that he cared more for the search after truth than for truth itself in saying which he revealed the fundamental secret of science to the astonishment and indeed to the vexation of scientific men well to be sure there stands alongside of this detached perception as an excess of honesty if not of presumption a profound illusion which first came to the world in the person of socrates the imperturbable belief that by means of the clue of causality thinking reaches to the deepest abysses of being and that thinking is able not only to perceive being but even to correct it this sublime metaphysical illusion is added as an instinct to science and again and again leads the latter to its limits where it must change into art which is really the end to be attained by this mechanism if we now look at socrates in the light of this thought he appears to us as the first who could not only live but what is far more also die under the guidance of this instinct of science and hence the picture of the dying socrates as the man delivered from the fear of death by knowledge and argument is the escutcheon above the entrance to science which remains every one of its mission namely to make existence appear to be comprehensible and therefore to be justified for which purpose if arguments do not suffice myth also must be used which i just now designated even as the necessary consequence yea as the end of science 
he who once makes intelligible to himself how, after the death of Socrates, the mystagogue of science, one philosophical school succeeds another, like wave upon wave, how an entirely unforeshadowed universal development of the thirst for knowledge in the widest compass of the cultured world, and as the specific task for every one highly gifted, led science on to the high sea from which since then it has never again been able to be completely ousted. How through the universality of this movement a common net of thought was first stretched over the entire globe. With prospects, moreover, of conformity to law in an entire solar system. He who realizes all this, together with the amazingly high pyramid of our present-day knowledge, cannot fail to see in Socrates the turning-point and vortex of so-called universal history. For if one were to imagine the whole incalculable sum of energy which has been used up by that universal tendency, employed not in the service of knowledge, but for the practical, i.e., egoistical ends of individuals and peoples, then probably the instinctive love of life would be so much weakened in universal wars of destruction and incessant migrations of peoples, that owing to the practice of suicide, the individual would perhaps feel the last remnant of a sense of duty, when, like the native of the Fiji Islands, as son he strangles his parents, and as friend, his friend. A practical pessimism, which might even give rise to a horrible ethics of general slaughter out of pity, which, for the rest, exists and has existed wherever art in one form or another, especially as science and religion has not appeared as a remedy and preventative of that pestilential breath. In view of this practical pessimism, Socrates is the archetype of the theoretical optimist, who in the above-indicated belief in the fathomableness of the nature of things attributes to knowledge and perception the power of a universal medicine, and sees in error and evil. To penetrate into the depths of the nature of things, and to separate true perception from error and illusion, appeared to the Socratic man the noblest and even the only truly human calling. Just as from the time of Socrates onwards the mechanism of concepts, judgments, and inferences was prized above all other capacities as the highest activity and the most admirable gift of nature. Even the sublimest moral acts, the stirrings of pity, of self-sacrifice, of heroism, and that tranquility of soul so difficult of attainment, which the Apollonian Greek called Saphrosyne, were derived by Socrates and his like-minded successors up to the present day, from the dialectics of knowledge, and were accordingly designated as teachable. 
he who has experienced in himself the joy of a Socratic perception, and felt how it seeks to embrace in constantly widening circles the entire world of phenomena, will thenceforth find no stimulus which could urge him to existence more forcibly than the desire to complete that conquest, and to knit the net impenetrably close. To a person thus minded, the Platonic Socrates then appears as the teacher of an entirely new form of, quote, Greek cheerfulness, end quote, and felicity of existence, which seeks to discharge itself in actions and will find its discharge, for the most part, in maiutic and pedagogic influences on noble youths, with a voice to the ultimate production of genius. But now science, spurred on by its powerful illusion, hastens irresistibly to its limits on which its optimism, hidden in the essence of logic, is wrecked. For the periphery of the circle of science has an infinite number of points. And while there is still no telling how this circle can ever be completely measured, yet the noble and gifted man, even before the middle of his career, inevitably comes into contact with those extreme points of the periphery, where he stares at the inexplicable. When he here sees to his dismay, how logic coils round itself at these limits and finally bites its own tail. Then the new form of perception discloses itself, namely, tragic perception, which in order even to be endured requires art as a safeguard and remedy. If with eyes strengthened and refreshed at the sight of the Greeks, we look upon the highest spheres of the world that surrounds us. We behold the avidity of the insatiate optimistic knowledge, of which Socrates is the typical representative, transformed into tragic resignation and the need of art. While, to be sure, this same avidity in its lower stages has to exhibit itself as antagonistic to art, and must especially have an inward detestation of Dioniso-tragic art, as was exemplified in the opposition of Socratism to Asclean tragedy. Here, then, with agitated spirit we knock at the gates of the present and the future. Will that, quote, transforming, end quote, lead to ever new configurations of genius? and especially of the music-practicing Socrates? Will the net of art which is spread over existence, whether under the name of religion or of science, be knit always more closely and delicately? Or is it destined to be torn to shreds under the restlessly barbaric activity and whirl which is called, quote, the present day? End quote. Anxious, yet not disconsolate, we stand aloof for a little while, as the spectators who are permitted to be witnesses of these tremendous struggles and transitions. Alas, 
it is the charm of these struggles that he who beholds them must also fight them end of chapter 15 recording by john van stan savannah georgia